You guys can have a seat. Well, good morning, Providence. We are glad that you are here this morning. My name is Jared, and I'm one of the pastors here. And my goal for this morning is to open up the scriptures and to show you how Jesus is cheering against the Patriots in the Super Bowl tonight. Amen. That is not my goal, actually. Uh, we are actually going to be looking at the Bible. Uh, that's a sports reference, by the way. There's a football game going on today. Feel free to ask your friends. You could probably go over and eat some good food with them, experience some good church community together with them, and watch some commercials. Anyway, today we are actually talking about the book of Mark, um, and we had mentioned it earlier, but uh, when we started off our church back in September, when we launched, uh, one of the questions was, hey, what are we going to start off by studying? And pretty quickly, as Andrew and I were thinking and praying, uh, it became clear, hey, we need to focus on Jesus. And so we decided to go through the book of Mark because it's one of the four accounts or gospels of Jesus in the scriptures. It's the shortest one. And um, what we did is we took the first half of Mark and we went through it in the fall, in September and October, and then we took a break and now we're going back to it. And the first half of the book of Mark is all about the identity of Jesus. It tells us who he is. And so you see him come to earth and he picks his followers and you see him loving people and you see him doing these miracles where he's feeding 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish, and he's healing sick people, making blind people see. He's calming a raging storm, and we're learning this power that he has. He's something unique and set apart. All of these things are giving us and giving the original disciples and the people around a clue into who Jesus really is, that he's a powerful man, the Messiah sent from God. And the second half of the book is all about the cross. It's all about the journey to the cross, and, and the, it's, it takes place in a shorter time period, but we're going to see Jesus and his disciples' journey to the cross. Now, the passage for today is really kind of a hinge passage in this idea in that on one hand, the first half of the passage is all about who Jesus is. It tells us, it builds out how great and amazing he actually is. And then it sends us with him on the way to the cross. And so you're going to see both of those things play out. And maybe the best way that I could describe today's passage of the transfiguration is kind of like a movie trailer. You know, you've seen uh, movie trailers before. Maybe you go to movies a lot. I don't get to go to movies hardly at all because I have three little kiddos. I did get to go see Pitch Perfect 3 the other day, by the way. Don't judge me for that. It was kind of funny, um, but the idea is, you know what it's like. You go and see, uh, a, you see a trailer or a movie preview, and you sit there, and if it's an action movie, they show all these intense moments, maybe fight scenes, chase scenes, whatever, and you're seeing all these highlights, right? Or if you are, are watching a, uh, the preview for a comedy, you see these funny scenarios, these jokes, funny, you're like laughing throughout, and inevitably, if you go to the movies with someone, and you're sitting there watching this movie trailer in front of you after it's over, you lean over and you either say, oh man, that looks amazing. We got to go see that. Or you're like, oh, that movie's terrible. I would never go see that, right? Isn't that kind of what you do after it gets done? Well, what happens is when you see these trailers that you really, um, that you think are really going to be good, sometimes uh, you go and you step into a theater and you sit down for two hours and you walk out and you're like sorely, you're like, meh. Sorely disappointed because you realize, man, all the funny parts in that were in the preview. I, all I had to do was watch it for two and a half minutes. I wasted the rest of this time. It wasn't good at all. You've had that experience, I'm sure, before. But then there's, on the other hand, the other kind of movies where you really want to go, you're anticipating it, and then when all the details come together, 
and the backstory and the character development and the plot thickens and, and the culmination of the movie comes, you realize, wow, that was much more amazing than I even really thought it was going to be. And the transfiguration is that kind of story. It's a, a movie trailer-esque in that it shows highlights of, of how Jesus connects to different parts of the Bible. But in 12 short verses, we are going to see that these highlights connect Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. That it connects the Old Testament to the New Testament. And you're going to see short glimpses of this, but when you hunker down and you actually study it and see this amazing and impressive scene... All the details, when they're filled in, show that Jesus is the focal point, not of only this story, but also the entirety of history, past to future. The focal point of the entire universe. And so my non-intimidating task for this morning is to show you the story of the entire universe and how Jesus is linked to all of that in just the next 25 or 30 minutes. So you can pray for me as I'm getting ready to dive into the text here, but I think that Maybe more personally for some of you, um, it's going to be specifically interesting that even though Jesus is at the focal point of everything, that he includes you in the story. That you have a place in this story that we're going to read, and he doesn't forget you in this process, and he moves intentionally toward you. So the text um, is going to answer two questions for us today, very simple questions, and the first one is, who is Jesus? Like, who really is Jesus? And then, on the other hand, we're going to see, how does he care for us? Who, is, who really is Jesus, and how does he care for us? And maybe for you, I would challenge you in a more personal way to ask these questions personally. Who do I believe Jesus is, and how has he cared for me? And my hope is, as you see a clear picture of Jesus and you see how he cares for you in this, that you would be left with one option and one, one option only, and that is just to follow him, to drop everything and to follow him. I have to follow this Jesus. And so we're going to open up our Bibles to Mark 9. We're going to start in verse 2. And before we get there, I want to give you a little background uh, context to this because it's been like two or three months since we've been in there. And I know the last uh, sermon that we had was like the end of October and Andrew preached it. And uh, Andrew, I'm sure it was an amazing sermon with an amazing big idea and outline, but I think we probably all forgot it by now. So I'll give you a little uh, catch up on this. And what happened was, so... Um, the disciples had gone through this couple-year journey of following Jesus and a culmination of all these crazy events. They saw him do these miracles. They saw him raise dead people to life. They saw him multiply uh, loaves and fish to feed 5,000. They saw him exercise demons, all of these things. And at the end of all of this, building his identity, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says that you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, which is right in word. And, and Jesus goes on to talk about how he's going to, because he is the Messiah, he's going to have to go on and suffer and die. And Peter rebukes him, takes him aside and says, no, 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 Jesus, you don't have to do that. And in doing that, Jesus gets back in his face and rebukes him, says, get behind me, Satan. And, and he says, no, no, you don't get it. I'm going to have to suffer and die, but it's not only me. But if you're going to follow me, you are going to have to lay your life down as well. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me, is the words that he uses. So the disciples, in this moment, they're, they're rattled and confused. They're fearful because they don't know 
what exactly is going to happen. They're fearful of losing their leader, Jesus. They're thinking, man, we've given up so much already to follow this guy. How much more can we give? What is this going to look like? And Jesus, knowing where their heads are at, and knowing that the difficulty to really, con- to, to really grasp this concept of what's about to happen, he gives them a consoling moment where he takes these three disciples and he goes up the mountain and, and they see this transfiguration. So we're going to start in verse 2 and read the first couple of verses. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, And led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. This is a crazy scene here. Like, I don't know about you, but I I, kind of want to just be there. I'm like, what did this look like? I wish I could have just, just seen this sight as they were on top of this mountain. Like, what exactly did Jesus look like? And what he's doing here is he is building out his identity. He's telling us who he is. Now, there's a couple clues that we find in the text. And the first one is very subtle. I wouldn't have gotten this on my own. I had to have some smart people who write big books tell me this. And that is, in the beginning, it says that after six days, Jesus took them up a mountain, and an astute Jew would have read this and said, wait a minute, Mark doesn't usually give details like this, but six days, somebody going up a mountain to meet with God, that kind of reminds me of someone else in Scripture. Going back to Exodus 22, when Moses went up the mountain, and God called him to wait for six days. And after six days, he met with God, and God gave him the law, and then he descended down from the mountain. And this is trying to point, first of all, that Jesus is indeed the new deliverer, the new and better Moses that's coming to save Israel. That's the first clue. Now, as we get into the second clue, just try to put yourself in this story. Try to imagine yourself being there on this mountain as you're looking and beholding this odd sight where it says Jesus was changed. The word that it uses is transfigured. The root word, the root Greek word for, for transfigured is the same word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. You remember elementary school science class when you studied metamorphosis, the process of when a caterpillar changes to a, a butterfly, right? It's a complete change. And so what is happening in this transfiguration is Jesus is right in front of them, but his physicality has changed. He actually looks different to them. There's this light that's coming off him, and he is clothed. His clothes have become radiant, completely white, whiter than any white that they have seen before. And not only this, but there are men on either side of him, and the disciples somehow recognized who these men were, and it was Elijah and Moses. These famous figures or prophets from the Old Testament were right there with him. Now, to Peter, James, and John, you have to understand, like, we're like, okay, Moses, Elijah, that's kind of crazy. But these were, like, their guys. These were the heroes, the forefathers of the faith. Maybe to us Nebraskans, it would translate, it would be like seeing Scott Frost standing in the middle and Bob Devaney and Tom Osborne on either side, right? It's like the current hero with the two forefathers uh, that are all coming together together into one scene. So this is the, that's the last football joke I'm going to tell on Super Bowl Sunday, by the way. Don't worry, non-sports fans. So you get the idea that their jaws are dropped. They're probably shocked at what's going on, not really knowing exactly what's 
happening, and they were starting to realize maybe there's something even more to Jesus than we realize. In the next verse, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And in classic Peter fashion, he interrupts and tries to to put himself in this conversation. He has this M.O. I once heard a pastor say that Peter's M.O. is one of ready, fire, aim. He kind of abruptly interjects before he realizes what he should actually do or say. Peter is trying to to get into a conversation that he actually wasn't really invited to. This reminds me, I've had uh, this happen to me a number of times. I I remind new parents, or warn actually new parents, if you ever uh, are going in as a first-time pregnant mom slash couple into the store Target and you go into the baby section or maybe you have a newborn baby if you have kids you know what I'm talking about you have to watch out for hovering moms when you go in there because you will go and whether you're looking at strollers or you're looking at diapers or you're looking at bottles or formula or whatever it is there will be some hovering mom that comes in and essentially says oh it's good that I'm here let me help you with what to do oh you don't buy this one you should buy this one oh this is not good and let me tell you why this stroller folds up nicely and they'll go on and on, and you're like, okay, I didn't invite you into this conversation. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, you have no place here. We, we have this covered on our own, and this is kind of what Peter is doing in this scenario here. He's interjecting and jumping in, and what he says at first about building tents, it, it sounds very ridiculous to us, because we're like, that doesn't make any sense. But there is some theological basis for what he's talking about. The word tent that he's talking about is the same word as tabernacle. I think back to the Old Testament. And when Moses went and he met with God and he came down from the mountain and they wanted to uh, uh, create a place for the glory of God or the presence of God to dwell, what did they do? They built a, a tabernacle so God's presence would dwell in there. And this is essentially... <clears throat> What Peter is doing, he thought, Jesus, you don't need to go suffer and die like you said. You can just be right here. Like, we have everything we need right here. The presence of God is with us. You guys are here. We can build three tents, one for you, you, and you, and we can go back to the good old days. Like, we can have this, and it will be just fine with the presence of God. But Jesus' purpose in this section is altogether different. See, Jesus and Moses and Elijah are actually on completely different playing fields. And while these three disciples, as they're looking, are probably thinking, wow, Jesus, our rabbi is on the same level as these legends of the faith, the opposite is actually true. Because all Moses wrote down about in the law actually point to Jesus. The deliverance that Moses led the Israelites out of points to Jesus in a greater deliverance. The, the words of the prophets like Elijah and other prophets in the Old Testament, what they were pointing to, what they were trying to lead God's people to, were actually pointing to Jesus the whole time. All the Old Testament, when, when God tried to help Israel become a people into relationship with him, and they failed, failed miserably over and over, all pointed to a greater reality that God would one day move toward them. He would come to earth to move toward them and live among his people in the person of Jesus. You see in this scene, the light of the glory of God that you see in this scene is not shining on Jesus. It's coming 
from Jesus. Jesus wasn't blessed by God in this scene. He actually was God. He wasn't just an earthly Messiah for an earthly kingdom. You see, who is Jesus? He's the very son of God. He's the one that the whole Old Testament pointed to. He's the light of the world. And in this very next verse, God the Father confirms this as he looks down and he says, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This cloud that surrounded him reminds us of the cloud that was on Mount Sinai. The cloud that was also leading, the pillar of cloud that was also leading the Israelites uh, in the story of the Exodus. This is a sign of the glory of God that was with them. No, Peter, James, and John, you're not following a mere man. You're not following an earthly king. You're not following a good guy who's going to teach great things or even someone who is equal with Moses and Elijah. You are actually with God. You don't need to build some structure to try to to harness this supernatural light or energy coming down from heaven because God has come to you. He's standing right next to you. He's Jesus. That's who Jesus is, the beloved Son of God, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. If that's who he is, what about our second question, how he cares for us? Well, how he cares for them, he knows these disciples are fearful they're scared about what's coming up. They don't know uh, what is going to happen to them or their leader, Jesus. And so Jesus takes them up a mountaintop to show them his power, to show them his glory, to show them his connection with God. And he wants to comfort them, to instill confidence in them that they are safe in the hands of God, that God himself is near and he takes interest in them. And he gives them a moment of consolation up here at the transfiguration on the mountain. So Providence, how does this exactly apply to us? Because we weren't there. Is it just a nice story that was encouraging to someone else? So you say, oh, good for them. That's great. Well, I think this shows us that Jesus operates in a deeply personal way. That God himself has come near and takes an interest in us and gives us moments of consolation like this. I think for us as modern Christians, a lot of times, at least the circles I run in, uh, we a lot of times kind of bag on, bash on mountaintop experiences. But you see here that God works in a mountaintop experience. You know, we have a tendency to downplay these times, but the Bible over and over tells us to look back and remember the works of God in the past. Remember the grace and the love that he's shown us in the past. So I think that that mountaintop experiences are a key way in which God works. Can you think of some of those experiences that you've had for yourself? Where God has maybe been more clear or more real to you than he's seemed in other times. I can think of a few. One reminds me, I go back, it was 11 years ago in the fall, I was at a college ministry fall retreat. 
I was in this chapel building at a camp next to the cornfield in Iowa, and I remember this band was leading us in worship, and for the first time, I had felt the freedom to raise my hands in worship. And I raised my hands, and I closed my eyes, and I was singing as loud as I could. And for the first time ever, it felt like Jesus was almost physically present right next to me. I could sense his presence so close to me that it seemed like he was just right there. I think of another time. Uh, A few years later, maybe uh, eight or so years ago, I was sitting at at the Starbucks on 114th and Dodge out on the patio reading my Bible, and I had just come off uh, a little breakup, and I was feeling all angry and bitter and weird. You know how that goes. And I'm like, ugh. And so I'm trying to read my Bible, get some sort of consolation from this. And as I'm reading, I stopped frustratedly and I said, okay, God, for real, like, are you telling me that you, invisible God, are going to be just as comforting? Are you just as good as, as what someone else, what another person could provide for me? And in a moment, it wasn't audible, but it was clear as day, God said, yes, I am that good. He said, she's not here with you, but I am. People will fail you and they'll leave you, but I will be with you forever. God spoke clearly in that moment. I think of another time um, in 2012 when I was at a church conference in, uh, in Austin, Texas, and I was coming off a time of, it's just very spiritually dry, just kind of feeling numb inside. Some of you know what I'm talking about, where you just feel this distance. You can't really feel anything. And um, at the end of this night of the conference, we were singing the song, It Is Well With My Soul, and the pastor who was leading the conference came up between uh, two of the verses of the song, and uh, he told the backstory to this song, and, and told how uh, impactful and deep heartfelt this was in the author who wrote this song, and I remember raising my hands, tears streaming down my face, feeling like God is with me. I, I sense you here with me, and for the first time in months, I could sing, it is well with my soul, and actually believe it. I'm wondering if you have some of these moments. Maybe it was when you got an a all-clear diagnosis to a health scare. Maybe you had a, a random encounter with a friend and they ended up speaking words of life to you, which was exactly what God was trying to tell you the whole time. Maybe it was in your room all by yourself, just opening up your Bible and singing and praying out to God and you just felt his nearness come upon you in a time where you were struggling. If you have it on a mission trip or a conference or a, um, a retreat where it seemed like you could just tangibly sense God right next to you, speaking to you like he had never spoken to you ever before. Jesus clearly led these disciples up a literal mountaintop experience, and he was very intentional. I think Jesus gives us these moments as well, intentionally. I'm sure that as Peter, James, and John went through the rest of their lives and as they uh, witnessed the the death of Jesus and processed the aftermath of that and then saw Jesus again and then went on to, to struggle and persevere through planting churches and building the church in Acts, their minds would hearken back to the time when they saw Jesus up on the mountain and it gave them confidence and reassurance that God was actually with them. That's the Jesus we're following. For us, I I would simply challenge us to remember 
these moments of grace in your life when, when God has seemed palpable and tangible right in front of you. Remember those things. Think on them. Thank God for them and apply them when the walls start closing in. When it seems like you don't know what you could do next, remember God's faithfulness in the past toward you. So I have to be honest, we're going to move to the second part of this story, but there is something more to this story. Something more rich and more powerful about who Jesus is that goes beyond even some mountaintop experiences that may hit you every once in a while. So I want to read these and really reveal what the last part of this passage is about. And as we read these verses, I want you to, to pick up on how it's talking about suffering in this last section. So we're going to start in verse 8. It says, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, What do the scribes say, or why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now, this is a little bit strange. Like they just went up to the mountain, they saw Jesus, and now they're talking about Elijah, and they're talking about all these different details and suffering. What exactly is going on here? Well, the disciples were reflecting the fact that the teachers of the law of the day always said that Elijah would have to come before a Savior, a Messiah, would come. And it was reflecting back to Malachi chapter 4. It's the very last verses of the Old Testament where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. So these Jews were all waiting for Elijah to show up on the scene. And Jesus says, you know what? You know what? You're right. Elijah will come. But you know what? He actually already has come. He has come in in an Elijah-like prophet that points forward to someone else by the name of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist comes, just like this verse says about Elijah, they're going to do to him whatever they please. And they did. They persecuted him. They made his life miserable. And they eventually killed him. They beheaded him. This is what, Jesus, this is, what is happening here. And I'm not just making up this connection with John the Baptist. Because if you read this story in Matthew chapter 17, you'll see that Matthew inserts a comment after this part of the story where he says the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. Now, we got to move on a little bit, because what's the point of all of this? Is he trying to build out some sort of theology of Elijah, our Old Testament prophets? Well, I think that what he's trying to do here is he's rather trying to build out a theology of suffering. And to tell them that suffering is coming. In other words, we were just up on a mountaintop together. We had a mountaintop experience, and now we're going down. John the Baptist has already suffered and died. Next is me, Jesus is saying. I'm going to suffer and die, just like I already told you. And you know what, disciples? You're going to have to suffer too. You're going to have to come and die as well. And you know what, providence? If we follow Jesus, we're going to have to suffer as well. Now, for a second, I want to pause and just talk about this idea of 
of suffering because I think just we just need to clear our heads a little bit and get over the notion that that Christian discipleship, the Christian discipleship journey that we are going on is just going to get easier and simpler until we kind of just coast and get it figured out. Like we've got to stop thinking that our Christian journey is just going to keep going up and to the right until we get it all figured out. Like when we wake up in the morning, we can't think, wow, because I'm a follower of Jesus, God's going to make everything work out for me today. It's going to be a great day, right? That's not what Jesus says. That's not how the Christian life works. That if we walk faithfully, that God's going to give us the man or the woman of our dreams so we can marry them. That might not happen. Or that if we walk faithfully, that he's going to give us the kids that we want. And they're going to be amazing and beautiful and, and obedient. They're for sure not going to be obedient. I'll tell you that right now. They may be good looking. I don't know. Or that our career is just going to keep advancing. And, and we're going to keep getting things figured out until we kind of put all the pieces together. And then all of a sudden, uh, we're just going to coast to the end of our lives. That is an unbiblical idea. The call to follow Jesus is to come and die. There's your positive and encouraging message from Providence Church this morning. When I think about this idea, I think about um, there's a, a woman that, that I admire that I've been able to, to work with overseas a little bit and also be able to host when she's here in Nebraska. She goes by the name of Miss Choi. Some of you, if you uh, came from Christ's community, you might uh, have seen her, heard her, or talked to her before um, but she has given her life for the advancement of the gospel in East Asia. She's like dynamite in a small package. She's about five feet tall, probably about 100 pounds, and she is an incredible follower of Jesus. And she has uh, rallied a team of people that has seen over the last couple decades over 700 churches, house churches planted in East Asia, in a closed country to the gospel. She has seen tens of thousands of people come to faith in Jesus through this movement. She is a living, breathing example of pick up your cross and follow Jesus. I mean, imagine some of the stories she's probably seen of the miracles, of the conversions that have happened time and time again right in front of our face. But there's something else, another part of her story that's also true that this reckless abandon for following Jesus has led her into suffering. She had actually been imprisoned multiple times, and one time uh, she was in one closed country and going across the border into another closed country and doing gospel work there, and she got caught in the middle of it. And because of that, she was put in prison for over six months in this closed country that wasn't her own, and she was placed in an area of a cell where she didn't even have enough room to lay down, and that's the only place that she was. And so she had three options. She could sit, stand, or kneel. And so she realized, hey, if I want to stay sane in this, if I want to worship God, I'm going to have to put myself on a schedule. So she created like a worship schedule for herself where she would worship standing and then she would worship kneeling and then she would worship sitting down. And through this intense suffering, her heart got pushed closer to Jesus. I... um. I imagine that most of us in here, are, the valleys maybe won't seem to hit quite that low. Maybe not quite that extreme, but there will be times um, when, when depression hits you and it feels overwhelming. 
Maybe when there is a medical diagnosis and it seems like, man, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Or maybe when a relationship, it, it breaks, it shatters right in front of your very eyes. You're like, I don't know how I could go on without this relationship. Or maybe more in the sense of, of suffering for the gospel. Um, you might not get thrown in prison, but you may be pushed to the outskirts if you live your life for Jesus. You may be ostracized. You may be left out. You may be made fun of. You may be discredited at your work, in public, online, wherever you might be. And the question is, is so is this saying that Jesus is going to walk us up to the mountaintop and give us another shot of glory, and then we're going to be good? Is Jesus going to always do that for us? The answer to that is no, but this passage refers to something a little bit more profound. You see, Jesus' suffering is not just a model for us to follow, but his suffering points to who he is and how he has cared for us. The words of Jesus' suffering point in this passage, specifically point us back to Isaiah 53, where it describes a suffering servant. And these are the words that it says in Isaiah 53. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, Jesus... He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And his suffering, it had a purpose. It pointed us to who he is and how he has cared for us. Think of this glorious scene, this high scene of the transfiguration. Where you see Jesus, and it was emanating. He was emanating light. It was bright. He was clothed in all white. More dazzling and white than anything anyone had ever seen before. And on this mountaintop, this glorious scene where where the two forefathers in the faith, Moses and Elijah, were were right next to him having a conversation. He was up on this high mountain having this amazing experience. And maybe most amazingly of all, the, the audible voice of God the Father spoke down to him and he said, You are my beloved son. But Jesus' suffering was pointing to another time when he wouldn't be up on a high mountain, but he would be stuck on a hill. And he wouldn't be wearing dazzling clothes, whiter than white, but instead he would be naked. And he wouldn't be stuck between two legends of the faith, but he would be stuck between two thieves. And there wouldn't be light emanating from him, but rather he would be in darkness, in the darkness of night. And maybe most devastatingly of all, he wouldn't hear the words of his father speak down from him. You see, as Jesus was on the cross, where it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he became our sin in that moment. He became our sin on the cross, and the moment where he looked up to his father, and instead of calling him father for the first time, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what did he hear? Silence. There's complete silence. These scenes are, are polar opposites. You see, Jesus, he didn't suffer in vain. 
In Isaiah 53, the very next verse, it says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, Jesus forsook the, the, the glory of this transfiguration moment. And he took on our sin to be forsaken by God, to take away our punishment. And now, because of that, when we stand before God, if we are in Christ, God the Father looks down on us and he says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Because Jesus took on the darkness, the cross, the sin, the punishment. Now we can be the ones who are fully accepted as sons and daughters of God. And through the glorious mountaintops and through the the suffering valleys that we're going to go through, we can know that God is here and God is near. So who is Jesus and how has he cared for us? He's our Savior. And he has cared for us by reconciling us back to God. By giving us the only relationship that truly can fulfill. And he promises us, promises us that he will never leave us. So this is what the Apostle Peter said years later, looking back on this event. Second Peter chapter 1 He's um, talking to the church and he says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and a voice was born to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. But get what it says next. He says, And now, church, now providence. Now, modern day Christians, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. What Peter was saying is that we initially on that mountain, we saw a preview, but now Christians, you have the real thing. Providence, you have the real thing because Jesus didn't stay in darkness. He didn't stay dead. But instead, he rose from the dead, and in a glorified state, he appeared to the disciples, and then he ascended on high into the heavens, and now he rules and reigns. He is king, and he is God. And one day, for followers of Jesus in this room, we will be with him in glory. And the glorified Jesus that Peter and James and John got to lay their eyes on for a second, we will see in full. It won't be a preview, but it will be the real thing. And we will have glorified bodies ourselves, and we will be able to live forever and ever and ever with him in eternity, with him as the light and the focal point. You see how this reflects a movie trailer throughout. It links Jesus to being in the beginning, the creator, God. And then it links him to Exodus and being the new deliverer, better than Moses, that delivers his people. It links him to the law in the Old Testament as being the fulfillment of the law. It links him to the prophets being the fulfillment of the one that the prophets were were testifying would come one day. 
It links him to being Emmanuel, God with us, the one who appeared, the one who saved us, the one who died for our sins and and offered atonement for our sins. And it links him to the very end of Revelation of being the lamb who was slain, who rose on high to be the king that we will worship forever and ever and ever. And the question is for you, who do you believe Jesus is? And how do you believe that he has cared for you? See, the story of the transfiguring. Got it. The story. The story of the transfiguration, on one hand, it highlights how high and mighty Jesus is, and how glorious he is. But then, on another hand, it, it tells us how amazingly personal and compassionate and caring and loving he is, that he would consider us in this story. Isn't that amazing? So, Providence, we as individuals, the the call from this text is that we can trust him. That we can look back on our past, on these moments of grace and love that he has shown him, and we can see how he's been faithful. And we can look forward with utmost anticipation and excitement because one day we will be with him and there will be no tears, no more suffering, but we'll be with God. And right now, in the moment, we can sit in the present and follow him. We can trust him. So as a church, could we pick up our cross and follow him? Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that, um, that you have cared for us. That not only are you God, but you are uh, intently personal. You're not distant. But you have gone out of the way to come and pursue us. God, I pray that as we go from here, we would be reminded of the acts of grace that you have shown us in the past, in our circumstances. But even more so, would we be reminded of the ultimate good news and the fact that you have reconciled us back to God. And we, will, or we are with you now and we will be with you for eternity. We want to be uh, people who are in awe, astounded, amazed, astonished by this good news. So Jesus, as we walk out from here, could we be an amazed and astonished people who pick up our cross daily and follow you? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.